Well, a happy new year to you all. And a happy new decade, I think. Unless you're a purist, in which case it's not a new decade. Is that right? So, happy new decade. Happy new year. And, uh, of course, every year, this time of the year, people make resolutions, don't they? Um, Hoping to make positive change. Researchers say that about 60% of us make New Year's resolutions, um, but only about 8% are successful in achieving them. And uh, you will know the the recurring themes every year. These are the 10 most common resolutions. Um, Maybe you've already made one or two of those. Okay. I wonder if you've broken them already. (coughs) Once the uh, the glow of a, a fresh new year wears off, many people struggle to make good on their plans, don't they? Um, One study looked at non-resolvers, people who don't make New Year's resolutions, uh, but they had a goal that they wanted to achieve. And they found that only 4% of non-resolvers were successful at achieving their goals. Uh, Far bleaker result than those who did make a New Year's resolution. Well, it's good to take some time out of our busy lives, isn't it? Um, To reflect upon our life and our aspirations and our dreams. You can do it any time of the year. You can do it any time. But start of a new year seems quite a logical time to do it, doesn't it? You know, we've put the old year behind us with all its woes or all its joys or whatever, and we're starting a fresh new year. And uh, it's a good opportunity to just reflect upon our life. And we're just going to do that in a few seconds. Years ago, my chairman said to me, um, he he was counselling me in business, really, and he said, you know, we can be busy fools, maximising turnover, but making very little profit. And we can fool ourselves into thinking that because we are busy people, we must be doing things right. And so it helps to stop and think if there is a better way. The letter to the Philippians, which we just looked at a small part this morning, was written by Paul to a church that he really loved. This was a church that had supported him in his need. And in fact, they were unstinting in their generosity to him. And it showed Paul, the sincerity they had for the Lord and for his work. And the letter to the Philippians is a little bit different to some of the other letters in the New Testament. For example, the letters of Galatians and Corinthians, where Paul was writing to address a specific problem that they had within the church. In the letter to the Philippians, there are no harsh words. It's a letter of love. It's a letter of of encouragement, it's a letter of thanks. And here in these verses that we've read together are some stirring words which we might want to take as our resolve into this new year. In fact, if you want to take a motto into this new year, then I'm suggesting that you use verse 10. Verse 10. I want to know Christ. 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So I want to know Christ. Well, here are some predictions uh, for this new year, 2020. Uh, Projects that are being worked on. Yes, Japan is serious about landing on the moon. Uh, It's already planning how to set up a lunar base with the help of the technology that it knows best, that is robots. And uh, Japan is working with the USA and with Russia in building a new space station that will orbit the moon. And if everything goes well, it should be operational this year. Well, the prediction is technologically it's possible, uh, but the economics of it might be the deciding factor. Another prediction for you. China will connect Beijing to London via high-speed rail. Passengers will be able to travel uh, by train from King's Cross to Beijing in just two days on uh, trains that travel almost as fast as airplanes under ambitious new plans from the Chinese. Uh, Prediction? Possible, but not likely. Okay, number three. Ah, yes, you've heard all about this, haven't you? Uh, It's long been a dream from everybody, from Google through to the car manufacturers themselves. Uh, Utter safety and ease of transport thanks to self-driving cars. And a decade of massive investment in robocar tech has spawned impressive uh, progress. But the arrival of a truly driverless car, the car that can go anywhere, anytime, Without human help, that remains delayed indefinitely. Although I did hear just before Christmas that they've actually got lorries now that are driverless. And they're talking about, uh, you know, the the lorry train, so that you have a driver in in a lorry at the start, a driver in a lorry at the back, and all the lorries in between would be driverless. And and that is uh, very, very doable. Well, the next one, this will please a lot of people. Biofuels will be cost competitive with fossil fuels. And uh, both the U.S. military and the U.S. Navy have pledged that this year uh, they would hope to be using uh, 50% biofuels. And I think the prediction is that 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 is feasible. (coughs) What about this one? I don't know if you remember the Back to the Future movies, do you? The rebirth of the flying car. Well, probably not. I can imagine that the air traffic control for that would be pretty impressive, wouldn't it? Um, They say there could be a flying Humvee by this year, uh, but the technology won't trickle down to the rest of us for quite a while. Yeah, the human brain remains biology's great unconquered wilderness, And the idea of meshing the raw power of the human mind with electronic stimulus and responsiveness has long existed in both science fiction and also in reality. Um, 
And uh, you can think of people perhaps who've got some, something already implanted in them to help them to do that. And uh, the prediction is that we might have chips in the brain by this year, but they won't be doing a lot. A bit like my brain, really. <laughs> okay, all new screens will be ultra-thin OLEDs. Um, all surfaces will become computational. LCDs will be a thing of the past. That's quite exciting, isn't it, I think? Um, prediction that this one, yeah, is a high probability that we'll start to see this year a lot more computational surfaces. What about this one? Yeah, the prediction is that commercial space travel is the real deal. Um, but beyond orbital flights, things become exponentially more difficult. The moon and asteroids and mining missions are unlikely targets within the next few years. And what about this? This prediction was made a couple of years ago, uh, and it seems even more likely now. A thousand-pound computer will have the processing power of the human brain. Well, these are some amazing things that man is working on uh, as we face 2020. And there are many challenges that lie ahead for our country, aren't there, and for our world. We won't be surprised to discover that the social trends are continuing as they have over recent years. And a snapshot of the modern British community is that families are spread because of job migration and consequently family support is under strain and weaker than when families live together in community. And children, of course, they lack the proximity of their parents to help out with childcare and all sorts of other advice which older parents like to give. There is more loneliness than ever. And not only amongst the elderly, the younger generation are just as susceptible despite having hundreds of friends on social media. Over half the population, 55%, state that they regularly experience feelings of loneliness. And then loss of status and self-esteem in retirement is particularly heightened when one partner dies. We have higher fences to our homes, don't we? We have all sorts of security devices. And we move houses more frequently. All these things contribute to mistrust, mistrusting our neighbours and helps to destroy our communities. And so we have a lack of volunteering. And the interest in the welfare of others diminishes. And in a recent survey, more than half of the nation, 51%, say that they do not feel part of any community. And almost 70% feel that the UK is not as neighbourly as it used to be. And by contrast to all that, there is a longing for what other people seem to have. Celebrity, esteem, wealth, power, and beauty. And the principles that our forebears adhere to seem to have fallen through the cracks in our modern society. 
We seem to have lost our moral compass. So to whom can we turn for help? Well, our experience over the past three years in the Brexit debate has made it very clear, I think, that it's difficult to assess what is the truth. There's been a large amount of misinformation, hasn't there? And it's hard to know quite who to believe. Everyone seems to have a bias, whether it's the politicians or whether it's the papers or the wider media, news feeds, even the BBC. And so we now look to a new government to give us a steer, but politicians have shown their inability to determine the nation's future. We surely can't rely upon them. You know, in 2017, the late Professor Stephen Hawking said he was not alone in believing that humans needed to find a new planet to live on within the next hundred years if it's going to survive. And the thinking is that with climate change, uh, overdue asteroid strikes, mass epidemics, population growth, humans will need to find a new planet to populate within a single lifetime. And that was revised from the thousand-year limit that Stephen Hawking had given the previous year. That sense of urgency should be a wake-up call to all of us. Lies are at peril. Mankind needs an answer that is cosmic in its effect, that can give a permanent solution, that is affordable, that is available to everyone. There is only one answer, and that's Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. And you can't find a cosmic answer that's bigger than Jesus. He stands outside of time and space, and he is able to provide an eternal solution. In human terms, we start this year with a dark shadow hanging over us, perhaps darker than in any previous generation. And yet we were born with a need for a sense of direction in life, a purpose, a reason for living. And the trouble is that instead of us putting our mark on the world, we let the world put its mark on us. If we lack direction and conviction, then we will be blown around by every strong opinion. Only Jesus has provided an answer that meets the human condition in its entirety. The evidence is there for anyone to see. It's not about putting faith into a vacuum or putting your head into the sand Faith in Jesus Christ is rational, it's reasonable, and it's logical. Jesus deals with our past, all our wrongs, all our hurts, all our shame. And he provides direction and purpose and strength to face life in the present. And he gives us an assured hope for the future hope for the future that exists 
beyond the grave and beyond the durability of our planet's ecosystems. Yes, I want to know Christ. And if you don't know him already, then make it your priority to know him. He is the one, the only one, who makes sense to life. He is the one who gives life purpose. Science helps us to to discover how and when things happen. But Jesus provides the who and the why. And scientific theories do not disprove or prove this explanation. Instead, they're, they're complementary to it. So attending the Alpha course, I know we've put it back a little bit, but attending Alpha is a great way to start finding answers to those questions that you've always wanted to ask. Not only do I want to know Christ, but I want to make it my all-consuming priority this year to know him better. Everything else pales into insignificance. So I want to immerse myself in God's word because that's where I learn more about Jesus. So let me throw out a challenge to you. You know, are you reading the Bible on a daily basis? Do you have notes to help you understand the Bible? Are you learning to apply the Bible to your lives? And then we need to imitate his ways. We need to attend church. That's what we're doing here this morning. But not just randomly. We need to get into a discipline of attending the, attending the place where God meets with his people. Not just when the mood takes us. And then we need to be serious about praying, about our prayer lives, don't we? This is a living relationship we're talking about. And we don't go days without talking to our partner. We want to be in a living, daily relationship with Jesus. And then we mentioned life groups this morning. Join a life group if you're not in one already. Make it a priority this year to meet with God's people. It's a great way in a small group to ask those questions and to enjoy the fellowship that, you know, you can come into a big place like this and go out and still feel a bit lonely, but not in a life group. You can feel part of the family and you can appreciate the presence of Jesus together. And then identify yourself with God's people. Be committed to God's church, whether it's this church or another church. Be committed to God's church. Be a steward, not a passenger. The church has an all-member ministry, doesn't it? So be a steward. Don't just be a passenger. Join the family. You know, we, we laugh and we cry together, and it's part of family life, isn't it, to be committed to each other. We have just celebrated the coming of Jesus into our world. He came in humility, not in a palace, but he came in poverty. He was born in a stable with a manger bed. He came in somewhat obscurity to a lowly family in Nazareth. But the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again. Only this time, he's not going to come in obscurity. He's going to come in majesty and in power. And we read that his coming will be very public. Every eye will see him. 
Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want to know Christ. I want to know him now. If all the world is going to see him shortly, then I want to be ahead of the game. I want to know him now. I want to hear what he's got to say to me. I want to know his spirit's power within my life. I want to know him better. I want to serve him better. I want to prove to him my love. I want to show him my adoration. There is nothing else in all the world more important than knowing him. He is the reason for living. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I'm sure we might all say amen to that, might we? We all want power in our lives, don't we? One of the great dreams of this generation is for celebrity status, for power, power in politics, in the media, in business. And power and wealth tend to go hand in hand. Paul says that he wants to know the dynamis, the dynamite, the power of Jesus' resurrection. That's power indeed. The power that can take a lifeless corpse and transform it into a living creature. The power that turns something dead into something dynamic. Paul wants to know the power of Christ, liberated by his victory over death and at work in the life of the believer, raising him from the death of sin and into the newness of life. In Christ. In fact, verse 11, Paul says that he wants to know all the benefits and the power of the resurrection body while still in this mortal body. That's what he's craving for. I wonder as we reflect on our lives this morning, whether they're somewhat humdrum, you know, same old, same old, day after day. Maybe we've got ourselves into a real rut from which we can't seem to break free. We want to experience some resurrection power. You know, in the topsy-turvy of God's kingdom, great power is achieved through death. The greatness of Jesus' power was seen, yes, through his miracles, but fantastically more so by his own resurrection from death. And in these verses that we have read, Paul says that he, Paul, needs to die to himself so that he might know the power of God flowing through his life. In verses 5 and 6, we read this morning, Paul writes his own CV, if you like. He says he was a model citizen. He was from pure ancestral stock. He was clever. He was well qualified. He was meticulous in his profession. He had every advantage that anyone could ever have. He had by birth and upbringing a lifestyle that many in his day would have paid a lot of money for. Yet as he reflects upon it in verse 8, he says... Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. How do you measure a man's worth? Well, the world uses the measure uh, by the power that he wields, the size of his income, the number of houses that he owns, and where they're located in the world. But God looks at the heart. And as Paul counts the cost of following Jesus, he says, I've lost everything for his sake. And I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that, it's with that, but that which is through faith in Christ. You know, the message puts it this way. Yes, all the things... I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog poo that's what he says I dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. That is what I want. To know that Jesus is enough, that knowing him better is my number one priority. And to know his spirit working in me day by day. In our post-Christian nation, we need to be alert to the increasing insidious dangers of secularism, of universalism, of humanism, and unitarianism, just to name a few. Tolerance of Christian worship will continue so long as it doesn't affect anyone else. And these, these names that I've mentioned, they're frameworks for ensuring equality throughout society. But they dilute the truths of the gospel and the centrality of Christ and the message of the cross. Yes, they'll allow you to believe if you want to, but secularism removes God from society. And universalism says it doesn't matter what you believe because all roots lead to God. And humanism views mankind solely responsible for its own existence. And it looks to science as the source for understanding our world. And unitarianism embraces people from all faiths and none with open minds so that the final arbiter of faith is your own personal conscience. So it's vital that you and I know what we believe and why we believe. And we need to live it and demonstrate resurrection power in our daily living. Be alert to the times in which we live. The attacks on our faith, which I'm sure this year will increase. And choose to live for Jesus.
I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know, Paul was writing this letter from prison, and his situation was serious. He had been in prison because of his faith, for the fact that he was a known Christian leader, that's why. And there was no certainty that Paul was going to be released. And indeed, there was a distinct possibility that, in fact, he would be put to death. So we could excuse him if he was somewhat introspective in his writing, and we could excuse him if he felt a bit down in the dumps. But he exhorts his readers to rejoice in the Lord, verse 1. It's a positive attitude. And he repeats it again in the next chapter. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. There's always the danger of depression and despondency when we are faced with trials, isn't there? For the church at Philippi, it was people attacking their faith. And we all face trials of some kind or another. And this year, I can confidently predict, will be no exception for many of us. Paul exhorts the church to maintain the right perspective on life. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We were, uh, just before Christmas, enjoying the screened live performance of Alfie Bow and Michael Ball in their final concert version of Les Miserables. I don't know if you know the story of Les Miserables. I'm sure you all do. And if you know the story, you will know that near the end, many of the young people sacrificed their lives on the barricade for the revolution. There is nothing like the threat of death to make us prioritise our life. It's important and vital to consider what we are willing to die for. The sacrifices of so many made during two world wars may not be repeated as much today in our loveless age. All true friendship requires a readiness to die, if not literally than to die to ourselves, die to our impatience, our reluctance to make sacrifices for others, to spend time with someone when they're not easily lovable, to be with them in their need, or to share with them in their suffering. Those are the tests of true friendship. I suppose that no martyr looked for confrontation or for death and they would avoid them both if they possibly could but without compromise. Sometimes silence and avoiding situations that force us to state our convictions can sometimes be the prudent course of action. We muffle our Christian beliefs to avoid being the targets of contempt. And whilst it was once prudent to do that, maybe, if we continue to do that over time, 
a once legitimate act of prudence can turn into a degrading habit that soils the soul. We need to live with honour and integrity in a world that would have us betray our convictions. Don't let us fall into the danger of diluting our faith to fit in with the mould of the world. More than ever, Christians need to stand up for truth, for right, to stand up for Jesus. We live in an age of moral decline. But we have an amazing message of hope and freedom to all who will come by faith to Jesus and accept his grace. Well, there's just one more, and it's this, passion. Because when Paul writes this, I think there's a real passion in what he says. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And there's such a passion in this statement, isn't there? There's a hunger. There's an eagerness. There's a strong desire. There's an urgency about it. This is serious stuff. It's about life and death, and you can't get much more serious than that. It's about making a choice, despite what might lie ahead despite the obstacles, despite the dangers. It's a mindset and a heart set that will far outlast the New Year's resolutions, but will shape the rest of your life for all eternity. It's a choice that we mean business, and we need to make it now, because we don't know what tomorrow might bring. Lives are at stake, and we can help. Don't be tempted by trivia, but let's keep the main thing the main thing. To persevere against the odds, to work tirelessly, but to work together. I'm going to finish with a story. It's a true story, and uh, it happened a few years ago. Some of you who come from this area might know the story well. On the morning of Wednesday the 19th of January, 1881, a Whitby ship, it was called the Visitor, it was a brig, it was being wrecked in Robin Hood's Bay. And the ship broke up, and uh, the crew, they launched the only lifeboat they had, and it was only when morning broke that the alarm was raised the crew couldn't venture through the surf. Robin Hood's Bay, I'm told, has treacherous rocks and only the foolhardiest would think of landing here in a storm. So these men in this little lifeboat in these pounding waves chose to stay just offshore where they struggled against the mountainous seas and snow blizzards. And when morning broke, the wreck was spotted, and the Robin Hood's Bay lifeboat was unseaworthy and unable to venture out into such a sea. So they had to find some sort of other solution. And so Scarborough was contacted, and uh, they said, we need assistance. There's a boat wrecked at Robin Hood's Bay. But the tugs 
were all aground in the harbour and it made a launch impossible. And so a telegram was sent to Captain Gibson, who was harbour master at Whitby, uh, requesting that a, that a lifeboat be sent out because a ship was being wrecked and the crew who had taken refuge in the longboat were astern of the ship off at sea and they were in the heavy breaking waves and they were unable to land on account of the fearful surf. So Captain Gibson immediately tried to launch the lifeboat but because of the prevailing winds it was impossible. A tugboat couldn't be used as it would surely have perished and so it was decided best to carry the lifeboat overland to Robin Hood's Bay. So began an epic six-mile journey over the moors to Robin Hood's Bay. And the main problem was the huge snowdrifts. The lifeboat, you can see there, was mounted on her carriage. And first the lifeboat's crew and close relatives, they headed off along the Scarborough Road. And then the powerful team of horses carrying the lifeboat, they carried it up the hill. But the treacherous winds and the snow blizzards, they made this difficult. Yet the men of Whitby were not to be beaten. They used shovels, they used horses, they used cows, and anything else they possibly could get their hands along, they used along the way. And they tore through hedges that got in the way. And they were helped by, by baymen who cleared the path from the Robin Hood's Bay side. And the epic journey built up momentum with farmers turning out to help. They met two people coming the other way and they urged them to turn back because of the blizzards. Yet three hours after they set off, they made it to Robin Hood's Bay. And when they reached the steep hill into Robin Hood's Bay, a huge cheer was heard. Over 200 men helped clear the huge six-foot snowdrifts and some of these were the lifeboat men themselves. And the lifeboat then next had to be lowered down the cliff. And once this was achieved, the expectant crowd awaited the rescue, yet the first rescue attempt was a failure. Eight oars were broken, and they were replaced with oars from the Robin Hood's Bay lifeboat. And so a second attempt was made, which resulted, thankfully, in rescue. It was an exhausting and traumatic event for those rescued. They had virtually given up all hope of rescue. But the crowd made up for it. The thousand or so people who had helped clear the way and virtually the whole of Robin Hood's Bay erupted in excitement as the epic rescue was completed. The rescue could claim to be the most epic and heroic ever in lifeboat history. Robin Hood's Bay and Whitby both treasure this story today. And ref rescues of this nature normally involve a few brave men. But this story involved virtually a thousand people who all helped in their own way, clearing roads of snow, forcing down walls and hedges, 
to make a path for this lifeboat. We're not a thousand people here this morning, but we're a good number. What a change we can make to our community. We all work together. Lives are at stake. The obstacles are enormous, but the goal is great. Let's pray. Just pause for a second. Father, at the start of this year, all sorts of things go through our minds. We think of maybe trials that we faced in this past year, and we say, Lord, I hope those don't happen this year. And maybe there's all sorts of excitement that we're looking forward to this year. Maybe there are fears. Maybe we would already feel disappointment at the start of this year. Lord, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But we thank you as we've reminded ourselves in our worship this morning that we have a Savior who is a rock. He is our shield. He is the one person on whom we can rely when all else fails and we thank you that he is of cosmic significance we thank you that he stands outside of time and space and affords us an eternal solution and in fact we read from your word that he knew from the start of time exactly what was going to happen and he provided a rescue for us Lord we thank you for the Lord Jesus we pray as we meet together on this first Sunday morning that it might be our resolve this year to know him, to know him better, to know the power of his resurrection in our lives, to share with him in his sufferings and in death, whatever that means. Lord, help it to be our resolve to be so entwined with you, so in love with you that that will dominate our living and our existence. And that we could say with Paul, whatever else is nothing, is rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Help us to stand up and be counted. And if, if we were called to do so, we would willingly give our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he gave his life for us. He showed us his intent. He showed us your incomprehensible love, infinite in its measure. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless us as a church this year, we pray. Take us forward. Keep us rejoicing. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.